the simple fact that you and I believe in the God of the Bible does not prevent us from being idolaters. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled Tear Down Every Idol. Throughout this series so far, Tom has been teaching on the subject of idolatry as it affects true worship. Friend, take a few moments to look around your house, your phone, your car, your media room, it's just possible that you might find some things that have become idols, idols of your own making. Even though you may not have bowed down to them as some might have done to wooden statues and other things in the past. But what is the most common form of idolatry in the modern world? And how do you learn to recognize and remove these idols from your life? Let's join Tom Pennington to find out more right now on The Word Unleashed. Before we can come to the worship of the true God, the scripture is clear that we first have to get rid of our idols. We must first tear down every rival for our allegiance. And so we're studying the issue of idolatry. Just to remind you where we've been, we started by looking at the biblical history of idolatry and we traced our way through the scriptures to see how idolatry has manifested itself among the people of God. Secondly, we looked at the inherent appeal of idolatry, and we found that really there are two inherent appeals. One is self-gratification, and the other is self-rule. Last week, we considered the true source of idolatry, and we noted that there are several springs from which idolatry flows, whether acts of outright rebellion against God to just our own sinful fallen hearts to the work of demons, we trace the sources of idolatry. Today, we come to a fourth perspective about idolatry and really the key issue. Because the fourth perspective that we need to gain, and it's one that's going to take us our entire time to grasp, is this. The biblical definition of idolatry. The biblical definition of idolatry. What exactly is this idolatry that we've been talking about? And what forms does it take? Well, God forever defined idolatry unequivocally, unmistakably, undeniably in the first of the Ten Commandments. And I'd like for us to begin there this morning. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. The children of Israel find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai, just a, a little more than a month out of the land of Egypt, and now they find themselves encountering the true and living God. In verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20, we have what is called the preface to the Ten Commandments. And this preface underscores their weight and their authority. They are important, and that's obvious, because notice, first of all, the way that they were revealed. Verse 1, then God spoke all of these words, saying. You see, these things were not copied from the law codes of the nations around them. These came directly from the mouth of God. Not only Moses, but some two million plus Israelites heard the voice of God say these things. They're also obviously important because of the person who revealed them. Notice verse 2. I am 
the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the I am. I am the only self-existent being in the universe. It's important because of the people's relationship to this God. Notice verse 2, I am the Lord, your God, and because of the grace that this God had shown them. The end of verse 2 says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How exactly did these people become God's people? By his gracious act of sovereign deliverance. By an act of sovereign grace, God had brought them out of slavery. And that was to be the motive for their obedience to these commands, as it is ours, by the way. Now that brings us to the first word, or the first command. Notice verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This first commandment, understand this very clearly, this first commandment deals with the object of our worship. There is only one God, and he and he alone is to be the object of our worship. The second commandment deals with the mode or the method of worship. And so we'll come back to it in a few weeks. But let's look at this first command, which governs the object of our worship. The Hebrew text literally reads like this. There is not to be to you other gods to my face. There is not to be to you other gods to my face. Now let's take that apart. First of all, notice that it's addressed to you as an individual. The word for you here in Hebrew, there is a different pronoun for the plural and the singular. This one is singular. So in other words, God wasn't speaking to two million people. He was speaking to every individual who made up those two million people, and God is speaking to you and not to us as a group. God says to you, there is not to be to you other gods. Now, what does he mean by other gods? Basically, it means this, any other objects of worship and devotion. There is not to be to you any other objects of worship and devotion. And then he adds, to my face, or before me as it's translated in the New American Standard. That means in my presence. We could say it means really two different things. It means you are not to have any other objects of worship or devotion, number one, in place of me, as a substitute for me, and secondly, in addition to me. You see, this command demands fear and love and worship of the one true God and of him alone. Now, this commandment is far-reaching in its implications for us today. But sadly, listen carefully, sadly, you and I and our culture has so emasculated a huge portion of Scripture, we have made it irrelevant to us simply by redefining what idolatry is. Our little simplistic definition is that idolatry, an idol, is solely an object made of wood, stone, or metal that becomes the focus of devotion and worship. Our concept of an idol, as we think of it, is confined to a material object someone physically falls down in front of. And so we immediately look at all those passages about idolatry and say, doesn't apply, never done that, have no desire to do that. Or metaphorically, when we use the concept of idolatry, we use it to refer to someone who is obsessed in the most extreme sense with something. You know, like the groupies who idolize a rock musician or a sports figure. 
hence the success of the show American Idol, or we use it as a, of a miser, somebody who's obsessed with money. Now, do you see the danger here? By redefining the term idolatry, we have essentially made it not applicable to us whatsoever. We have made it only applicable to the ancient past or to some remote third world place today where they still fall down in front of a block of wood or to the most extreme parts of our culture. But it has no application to us sitting here this morning, no application to a sophisticated city full of people in Dallas-Fort Worth, but that is not the picture the Bible presents at all of idolatry. That is not all that the first commandment forbids. As Oz Guinness says in his excellent book, No God But God, idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated minds as well. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. All too often it is found on center stage. Now if we're going to construct a biblical definition of idolatry, it's very important to understand this foundational assertion. Idolatry does not require explicit denials of the true God's existence or of his character. Let me say that again. Idolatry does not require a person to explicitly deny the true God or to deny the character of the true God. Solomon, of course, is a great example of that. We saw several weeks ago that Solomon, who never, as we can see from Scripture, never stopped worshiping the true God, simply added, because of the influence of his wives, the worship of false gods. Most polytheists believe that one of their gods is in charge. Take the Greeks, for example. There's this huge pantheon of Greek gods. Zeus was the god in charge. Or take the Romans. The equivalent to Zeus in Roman worship was Jupiter, and he was the chief god. Or take the Canaanites. The chief god in the Canaanite religion was El. So you always see, even in polytheism, that there is one god who is dominant. In fact, you can see this in the writings of some famous people. Take the Roman writer Cicero, for example. Listen to him. He sounds at first like he's written part of the Old Testament. When we behold the heavens, when we contemplate the celestial bodies, can we fail of conviction? Must we not acknowledge that there is a divinity, a perfect being, a ruling intelligence which governs, a God who is everywhere and directs all by his power? Anyone who doubts this may as well deny that there is a sun that lights us. Sounds great so far. So what's his response to that? Listen to what Cicero wrote. For this reason, with us, as well as with many other nations, the worship of the gods and holy exercises of religion increase in impurity and extent every day. Now what can we learn from that? What does that tell us? It tells us that there are many people who acknowledge that there is a supreme being, but still commit themselves to the worship of other things as well. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods not only in place of me, but in addition to me. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 4.10, quoting Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now listen, this is absolutely foundational. The simple fact that you and I believe in the God of the Bible does not prevent us 
from being idolaters. Many of the Old Testament idolaters believed in the God of the Bible as well. So with that understanding then, with that basic grasp, we're ready to look at the various forms that idolatry takes. As we flesh out a definition, a biblical definition of idolatry, the way we'll do that is by looking at the various biblical forms idolatry takes. What does it look like? Well, I'm going to hurry through the first few simply because they are the forms that we're most familiar with and because they're the forms that we have less of a temptation with. So stay with me. We're going to get to the heart, to our hearts, before we're done. But let's start by taking a broad overview of what are the forms of biblical idolatry or the forms of idolatry that are recorded in Scripture. Number one, worshiping nature and its unexplained forces. Worshiping nature and its unexplained forces. For example, venerating and worshiping the sun or the moon or the stars or fire or lightning. These were probably the first objects of false worship. These were the first expression of idolatry. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses warns the children of Israel against this. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 19. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. You see, to, to see in the creation some unexplained force and to worship that is idolatry. Animism is, of course, the common expression of this, and there are still animus in our day. Many Native Americans are animus, that is, they worship the force of nature, the spirit of nature. Wiccans also would fall into this category as well, which is uh, a religion that's mounting force with the growth of feminism. And so these are forms of idolatry. Now, let's look at a second form. Not only does idolatry express itself in worshiping nature and its unexplained forces, but secondly, worshiping false personal gods, worshiping false personal gods often localized in images of wood or stone. False personal gods. You know, when we studied the history of idolatry in the Bible, this was the most common form that we discovered. So I'm not going to go back through all of those passages. If you weren't here, you can get the CD or listen online. But there's one key issue about this that I want us all to understand. Realize that those images that people carved and cut out of stone and fell down in front of and worshipped, those images were usually merely physical representations of a divine being, but not the being itself. You know, we tend to look down on them and think that in somehow in their minds that thing they cut was really their God. In most cases, that was merely a physical manifestation or representation of a spiritual being. For example, the Canaanite god El that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he was pictured often and carved as a bull, and people would fall down and worship in front of this bull. The bull part was to illustrate his power. It was to illustrate his strength, his might. But the same God, El, in other drawings was presented as a man. 
And so understand that those images often were not the gods themselves. People didn't conceive of those images as the gods themselves, but rather simply a visible manifestation of the god. Now, I'm sure over time, it's possible that to many of the people, that animal or that image actually became in their minds the god itself, but that's not how it began. It's not the image itself that is primarily the issue. It's the fact that they are worshiping a false god through that image. Now, this form is what most people think of when they think of idolatry. Of course, the, common, uh, the most common expression of this form in our day is found in Hinduism with its millions of gods and with its various temples and pieces of stone and metal and wood carved as objects to localize those deities and through which those spiritual beings are worshipped. Now, although it's typical for these false gods to be localized in images, it's also possible for them not to be. For example, in 1 Kings 18, you remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel and the 400 prophets of Baal? Well, you remember that they called upon, the Lord, upon their God, upon the Lord, or Baal as he's called, all morning. They cut themselves, they called out. There's no indication there was any image anywhere to be seen. Instead, they were calling to God as the storm god, to Baal as the storm god, to unleash lightning and consume that sacrifice. And so they were worshiping Baal, but not through an image at that point. So understand that these false personal gods could be worshiped through an image or localized in an image or not. Let me give you a couple of modern examples of false personal gods that are in no way associated with images. One, of course, that's constantly in the news these days is Islam. Allah is not worshiped in images, but he is nevertheless not the God of the Bible. He is a false God. Other examples can be found in many of the cults of Christianity. For example, take Mormonism. Mormon doctrine teaches that what God is, you may become, and that what you are, God once was. And in fact, humanity was physically conceived through a sexual relationship with God and his wife. Now that, I don't have to tell you, is not the God of the Bible. It is a false God even though it is not localized in images. You go in a Mormon temple and you're not going to find an image of God that they fall down in front of and worship. So, a second form that idolatry takes is worshiping false personal gods that are sometimes localized in carved images. A third form that idolatry takes is deifying abstract concepts or forces. Deifying abstract concepts or forces. Now, the best biblical example of this is in Isaiah 65 and verse 11. There we read these words. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. Destiny and fortune in that verse are God's. Fortune is a God's name who stood for good fortune, apparently a Syrian deity, that was known in Palestine, and destiny was also another god's name. Both of these gods spoke of abstract concepts, our forces. And here you have preparing the table, in Isaiah 65, 11, preparing the table and filling the cups of wine. That seems to refer to cultic meals eaten in honor of these deities, these abstract principles or forces. In our day, Buddhism would be a good example of this form of idolatry. 
technically, Buddhists, Buddhists say that they are non-theists. They don't believe in a God. They instead are involved with an abstract concept. Now, the Buddha says that, in fact, all of us who worship something other than in Buddhism are, in fact, worshiping the Buddha himself. But nevertheless, they say that there is no, there is no God who is worshipped. Instead, it is an abstract concept or force. Same thing would be true, by the way, of Scientology. A fourth form that idolatry takes is improperly venerating something attached to the worship of the true God. Improperly venerating something attached to the worship of the true God. Now, there are a number of biblical examples of this. Let me just give you a couple. In Judges chapter 8, and verse 27, you remember the judge Gideon, he makes an ephod, that is, one of the robes like the high priest wore. And he collected a lot of jewelry, and he either attached on a piece of material a lot of of gold, or he made it carved out of a piece of gold. We don't know which. But that ephod, we're told in Judges 8.27, became an object of worship. The people, we're told, played the harlot with it. That is, they treated it as an object of worship. They were unfaithful to God in worshiping this Thing that was originally attached to the worship of the true God. In 2 Kings 18.4, we read about Hezekiah. And in Hezekiah's day, he had to absolutely break into pieces. You remember that bronze serpent that Moses made back in the wilderness? Well, it was still around. And Hezekiah had to break it into pieces because we read, in those, until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan it became an idolatrous object of worship, even though it had been ordered by God to be made. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 in the New Testament, we read of those who worshipped angels. So if you take something that is to be used in the worship of the true God and it becomes in and of itself an object of worship, then you are committing idolatry. Modern examples of this kind of idolatry are very common. Take the icons, for example, in Greek Orthodoxy. If you've been in a Greek Orthodox or an Eastern Orthodox church, all of those icons that are, have incense burned in front of them, that prayers are prayed to, those have become an object of devotion and worship. And I understand how they explain that that's not true, but in reality, that's exactly what occurs. There are a number of ways that this form of idolatry is expressed in Roman Catholicism. For example, in their veneration of the crucifix, of Mary, of the wine and bread and communion, their veneration of the saints. All of those things are, can be part and parcel of the worship of the true God, but they have become in and of themselves idolatrous because they are be- being improperly venerated and worshipped. Number five, a fifth form that idolatry takes, and this one will surprise you, I think, is refusing to recognize Jesus as Lord. Refusing to recognize Jesus as Lord. One important form of idolatry is especially seen in people's unwillingness to worship Jesus Christ and to acknowledge him as Lord. You see a hint of this in the Old Testament. Turn to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, a very familiar psalm to us all, in verse 2 it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is, the Messiah, Jesus, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So what's the remedy to this act of rebellion? 
down in verse 11. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Even here we understand that if you're going to worship the true God, then you must also worship his Son. And to fail to do so is to fail to worship the true God. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his current series titled Tear Down Every Idol. Tom will have part six for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.